welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and a Facebook, which are at From Skirts to Scrubs. We have a Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can also check out our website for more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more at fromscursescrubs.com. Yes. And you can also subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is the best place to do all of those things. Yeah. Also, I just learned that on Spotify, you can add a little rating. No reviews yet. Oh, you can add a rating now. Wait, that's fun. Yeah, so- Okay, rate us on Spotify. And with that, welcome back to episode 35, everyone. Woo! I hope you are all having a fabulous week and fabulous day thus far. It is also March 8th, International Women's Day. Yay! Yay, women! Today is a day to recognize and uplift women and their achievements. So be sure to praise the women in your life today, as you should be doing every other day. But as part of viewing the world from a feminist perspective, like we do on this podcast, You should also be looking at the women who are left behind or usually go unnoticed, especially today as we are praising women. So look for those women who aren't usually recognized for their hard work, someone who is the wallflower that should be showcased. International Women's Day is a day to praise women's achievements, but also recognize their hardships. So if you want to promote women's owned company today, definitely do that, but also seek out different places that you can donate to, such as a women's shelter or charity. And if you want guidance on finding an organization to donate to or support, you can check out our Instagram post for International Women's Day and we can lead you to some cool places and organizations to check out. Sending love to all the women out there on this great day. But what is our episode about? What the heck is episode 35 on? Well, I'm guessing you already know if you read the title and bio for this episode, or maybe you're just like a super dedicated fan and you hit play without even seeing the topic. Today's episode is on the intersection of art and medicine, which when you first hear it can seem kind of broad. You're like, that's, that's a lot of things. Which, well, it is. So today we're going to be discussing a little bit of art history, mostly for funsies, and then talking about art therapy. Alicia's smiling so large right now. <laughs> She's so excited about art history. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited too. Yeah. And then we'll talk about art therapy and we'll wrap it all up with a little bit on art in healthcare education. So whether you are a art fanatic or a healthcare provider trying to expand your interests, a really good thing in between this episode is for you. But before we can get started, Alicia, tell me about anything you know that has to do with art and medicine. Um, I have art therapy at the hospital. It's really nice and relaxing. Drawing is really um, enjoyable. And so I'm not surprised that some people find it to be like a therapeutic thing. I know that there's way, way, way more to that, but I don't know <laughs> anything about art and medicine. I guess it's okay. There must be, there's probably like a lot of old art that has medical and health connotations. But besides that, I don't know. So just tell me. That's okay. We have, we have a good array of topics to do with art medicine today. And you'll definitely learn a lot. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get into it then. Let's do it. All right. So here we go. Alicia, when you think of art and like illness, like health, what is one artist that comes to mind for you? I don't know. Think of an artist, like not like artists like today. I know. I'm trying to think of some like Renaissance. Oh, Da Vinci. Not Da Vinci. That would be a good one. That was a good one. We went to an exhibition together for this artist. Oh, an exhibition. Um, Ex- yeah, exhibition. <laughs> yes, Van Gogh. Yes, Van Gogh. The one who caught off his own ear. Which, yes, Vincent Van Gogh. So before we get too deep into Van Gogh, I just want to say like how interesting it is that if you think of like artists and mental illness per se, like Van Gogh and cutting off his ear is something that like can quickly come to mind for people when they think of like, oh, a crazy artist type of thing is kind of like a quick connection some people have because mental illness and artists often go hand in hand, especially in history, which itself is a full discussion within the art community because people argue that the illness is what creates the art. So then people don't want to get treatment because they're scared it's going to affect their art when truly your illness is not 
what creates your art. It's your experience having the illness, which doesn't mean you can't be treated. So if you're someone out there who has a mental illness and is also an artist and struggles with that dynamic, definitely talk to your doctors. But just because you have an illness doesn't mean you treat it doesn't mean you're not going to be an artist anymore. So I just wanted to point that out. And it's super true within art history and today. So we're going to start with Vincent Van Gogh. So Vincent Van Gogh had uh, quite a struggle with mental illness throughout his artistic lifetime, which really became apparent when he voluntarily cut off his own ear one day. And then he wrapped it up in some little papers and gave it to a prostitute at a brothel as a little gift as his ear. And the prostitute was like, what? And they... um. Like the head of the brothel went to the police and Van Gogh was arrested and sent to a hospital. And this is where he was first diagnosed with having insanity, which that was as specific as it came at the time. But today is believed more to be like possibly manic depression. Mm. Um, So like a type of bipolar. And from the hospital, Van Gogh was recommended to enter a psychiatric hospital but he didn't. He was ended up being discharged and going back to his normal life. But in the following months, Van Gogh went through huge waves of confusion and forgetfulness, times when he wouldn't really know who he was anymore. And his art would fluctuate with that. Mm. But eventually it got so bad that Van Gogh decided he wanted to commit himself. So he actually committed himself to an asylum. And this is where he created some of his most famous paintings. So there's one painting he has of an asylum hallway that's very famous. And he also painted Starry Night while in the asylum. My favorite. Which is his most famous painting of all time. And if you don't know what Starry Night is, I promise you that you do. It's the one that's blue and has the big swirls in the sky. And it looks like there's like a couple buildings in the distance. And Van Gogh really got deep into his paintings at the time because painting became one way he could cope with his health during this time. So he was in the psychiatric hospital, not doing well, and but painting was what was helping him through it all. So he actually lived in like a cell, unfortunately, because it was an asylum. But the cell next door he used as his studio. So when he was feeling more on the good side, he'd be able to do art to get himself Hmm. through the day. Like I said, a lot of these arts became the most famous ones. But today, there's a lot of speculation of how his mental illness might have played into his extraordinary um, art pieces. A lot of people ponder his use of yellows because he uses a ton of yellow in his paintings, which was not like mm-hmm. a common thing at the time. And what it could possibly mean, like all these things trying to dissect Van Gogh's mind and what this illness he possibly had was doing to his art. We may never really know what it means. But the most important thing, I think, is that we can see how this art that he created and that um, touches so many people today really helped struggling man through just the hardest parts of his life. So that's my little segment on Van Gogh. There's been like a Van Gogh exhibition going around the United States for like a long time now. It's still going around. So if it's still open in your area, you should definitely check it out. Goes through Van Gogh's life in his his pieces. And it's very touching. It was great. And I went together. All right. The next piece of art I want to discuss is by Edmund Munch. Yeah, Edvard Munch. Edvard. Oh, okay. So he suffered <laughs> <Edvard>. from... <laughs> okay, so Edvard, he suffered from anxiety and hallucinations. And I want you to guess, Alicia, I guess you probably already know what piece he created that team. <laughs> Alicia made the screen with her face. Literally, it. yes. The screen painting, it's called The Scream. And if you don't know what it is, it's literally a man standing on like a bridge I don't want to assume it's a man, but it looks like a man standing on a bridge with hands on his face, like totally just screaming. So I hope that have you have that image in your head because this is something he's very famous for. And apparently the inspiration came one day when he was like walking during the sunset and he was hit with a huge anxiety attack, leaving him feeling like he needed to scream and like his scream would shake the nature around him. And today this is exactly what the painting looks like. There's waving colors and looks to be like there's movement within the painting as this person is screaming. And this was representation of his anxiety at the time. And today it is still very much a representation of many people's anxiety within like just modern life. And it really, if you look at the painting, it truly depicts what it feels like to really scream. Like if you screamed with every inch of energy within you, like I could see how you'd feel like you could shake the world around you. And that's exactly how Ed, Edmund Edmund felt. And 
It's funny because if you, not that all of our listeners are medical, but there's like these videos called sketchy videos that help medical students learn by teaching them through cartoons. And one of them talking about psychiatric medications and antipsychotics uses mm-hmm. uses the scream painting as and like a, Starry Night. Yeah, and Starry Night. Yeah, they really tap into all of these artists having their own mental illnesses. So that one was really interesting. And then my last little bit of art history, I had never heard of before. I'd never seen this painting before. So I will be interested, Alicia, if you've heard of it. It is by Frida Kahla, who is a Mexican artist who is known for her self-portraits and works inspired by various nature scenes in Mexico. So Frida struggled with many hardships throughout her life. She had polio at a really young age, which left her to have a permanent limp, which is why she wore long dresses and skirts for most of her life to, um, to cover up her legs that had been damaged by polio. And she was also in a bus accident at one point where a handrail impaled her in the bus accident and it left her spine and pelvis like oh severely God. damaged. That's awful. And it wasn't awful. And while she was like recovering from this accident, she actually created one of her first self-portraits, um, which I thought was interesting. But really the whole point is that the accident and her pelvic damage left her with really immense mm. fertility issues. So at one point, her and her husband, Diego Rivera, moved mm-hmm. to Detroit, Michigan, of all places, to work with the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is my favorite art museum ever because it's <laughs> awesome. And while they were living in Detroit, Frida was pregnant and she, despite her fertility issues, but during her pregnancy, it was not an easy pregnancy and she was put on bed rest mm. at Henry Ford Hospital, which today is a major hospital system in Detroit. But unfortunately, while on bed rest, Frida suffered uh. a miscarriage, which required an abortion. I know. Awful. And it was awful for her. And, you know, everyone involved is very traumatic. And Frida fell into a very deep depression for the following weeks where she remained in the hospital. And after she was discharged, she actually went on to depict this experience in a painting called Henry Ford Hospital. Oh, literally, literally the name of the painting. (laughs) I've never seen this painting before. It's super intriguing. You should Google it, Alicia. And I'm going to post all these paintings, by the way, like on our Instagram so that you can see with your own eyes. But it's such a crazy painting. It's kind of looks like there's the skyline of Detroit in the background. And Frida herself is laying on a hospital bed that's like kind of floating in the foreground of the painting. And from her stomach, a bunch of things are coming out of it, kind of like attached to a string. It looks like there's a baby. Looks like there's like, like a fetus. Looks like there's a uterus, maybe a placenta, like a maybe. flower. Oh. Yeah, there's like a pelvis. There's, there's like a, a snail. Happening. I don't understand the snail. Yeah, there, there is a snail. Like it's it's the painting is truly something. It's very interesting to like look at, try to analyze and like try to figure out what exactly Frida was feeling during this like post miscarriage, post abortion time. She was so depressed and she like put us all in this painting. It's yeah, I don't know what it means, but it's very interesting. So like I said, I'll post all these paintings on our Instagram so you can check them out because you don't have to search for them yourself. But I definitely recommend looking at them and thinking about how these artists like all these hard times and help their art to get them through it. But you may ask, Charlotte, why are you telling me about all this art history on a feminist medical history podcast? Well, one, I like art. I think it's fun <laughs> and interesting, which is why I included it. I like it. <laughs> Just because I like it and it's my podcast. Two, <laughs> because through these famous paintings and painters um, and so many other paint like paintings and painters that I did not mention, we can draw a really nice through line of how art has helped people to some of the hardest part of their lives in the past and how it helps people continuously today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my little art history bit. If you want more art history, I recommend checking out art museums such as uh, the DIA. And yeah, whatever art museums in your area, I'm sure there's some great ones out there. But moving on, this leads me to the practice of art therapy. So what is art therapy, you may ask? So it is a form of occupational therapy used to assist with a number of conditions. The practice is mainly composed of art, of course, and psychology. And the goal of therapy is to help patients develop self-awareness as well as understand their own emotions. It can improve social skills and even increase self-esteem. Now, it's a relatively new field in the grand scheme of things. 
like Alicia, when do you think maybe it started? Art therapy. Maybe like the 80s. A little older than that. It was like the early 1900s. Oh, that feels old to me. So it's like, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But in the grand scheme of like medical history, it's not that old. I guess. Yeah. The term art history was coined in 1942 by a British artist named Adrian Hill. Adrian had fallen ill with TB and discovered death through art. They were able to cope with having TB. And then they were like, wow, we should call this art therapy. Mm-hmm. And, but in the United States, art therapy actually began in 1915 by a woman who was known as the mother of art therapy, Margaret Newberg. She started the first art therapy school ever in the United States. Her school was built on the philosophy that when children practiced art, they would have a healthier development. So she was kind of like tying development to art. Mm. And one article from this Good Therapy website stated that Margaret believed once the symbolic expression of a person's state of mind was combined with the cognitive and verbal aspects of experience, healing would take place. Aw, I like that. Which is basically what art therapy is. So she was really starting to form these connections between like art, development, healing, and what this all can mean. And then another art therapy founder, Edith Kramer, believed that art therapy could help define patients' goals, support their ego, develop identity, and foster growth. So from the beginning, art therapists were like, this is going to be super beneficial to our patients. And they're not wrong. Overall, art therapy can help people express emotions and thoughts that they cannot express verbally, or maybe just emotions they didn't even know they had in the first place. Mm-hmm. So whether a patient is having a hard time with their, their own illness, or they're just kind of that person who just like has a hard time being in touch with their inner self or doesn't really understand their own emotions, art therapy is super, super great. And there was one study done, which this is amazing. So there was a study done on 32 women with heart disease. And they are asked to draw their illness. And then once these women are done, they took their paintings or whatever medium they used. And these art therapist researchers analyzed the art and categorized them into three categories. Heart at the center, heart in the lived body, and heart disease as a social illness. So they're kind of able to say like, okay, this woman sees her heart disease as affecting her like social life versus this person sees it at like the center of their life versus this person sees it just like as a bodily entity. Yeah. As our therapists were able to take these findings about what, how the women were portraying their illness and talk to those women's physicians about it so that those physicians would be better equipped to speak to those patients and understand how they viewed their illness and move forward with having conversations that were more beneficial to those women and also treatment plans. Because if you're viewing your illness as something that's making it hard to live your everyday life and be sociable, then those are really important things to talk about with your physician to talk about like, how can we support you in the best way possible? So it's not affecting your life such as this. So and this was all just through a painting. Um, and maybe the woman and you know patients in general have a hard time expressing that to their physician or to anyone and something like art therapy gave those women like a chance to have their care more specialized for them. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really cool. And studies have shown again and again that the use of art therapy has overwhelmingly positive results in patients. It helps patients decrease stress. It increases positive thoughts. It causes lower rates of depression. It can increase self-purpose in patients. It can increase confidence in patients. All good things, really. But what types of diseases can art therapy benefit? I already mentioned heart disease. What else do you think, Alicia, can art therapy benefit? I feel like a lot. Like any kind of chronic or terminal, maybe like condition. So I imagine like cancer or something that's like kind of difficult to cope with. Yeah, exactly. It really can help anything. Um, it's been shown and studied to be beneficial in things such as depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, cancer, um, compassion fatigue, which I thought was interesting, mm. anorexia, bulimia, intellectual disabilities, etc. And then there's also some new studies that are looking at how it can be beneficial to schizophrenia patients, which I would like to learn more about because that would be interesting to see like how our therapy helps with that. So, but yeah, I can basically help with anything. And as I was doing research on the matter, there were lots of websites and projects that would come up talking about people and the illnesses. Like there was one project the woman started that had to do with 
um, chronic disease, specifically Lyme disease and art therapy. And a lot of groups and like support groups can be based around creating art and what that has to do with their illness and expressing themselves. But I will say that art therapy, um, you know, you can have your own art therapy at home, you know, painting for stress relief, expressing yourself through art. But that doesn't mean exactly that you are an art therapist because it's a lot um, more complex than that. So to be an art therapist, you have to have a background in art, but also a background in psychology, human development, um, various counseling and, and like psychoanalysis methods and more. And if you want to become a licensed art therapist, you have to complete graduate level courses and you can also take a national like board exam. Mm -hmm where you demonstrate your clinical skills and understanding of art therapy to become board certified. And that's like the highest level of education an art therapist can have. Mm. So like you said, Alicia, like Michigan has art therapy and I've already met, I've actually met the art therapist who leads Michigan's program. And she is like so amazing. And so really understands like how asking the right questions when you do art therapy can lead to you know, a better output from a patient. It's not just like putting them down and being like, okay, draw now, yeah. you know, it's like asking them these questions that are more pointed um, to giving them to draw something specific. And then you slowly start to move someone in a direction that allows them to express how they're feeling. Do you have an example? Um, which takes guidance. Like, what does that look like? Okay. So some examples of art therapy that I can find online and like, I'm not art therapist. So I'm sorry if these are not entirely correct because I've not gone through the training, but you could do things like you could design a postcard that you'll never actually send. It's just like something that you want to draw. Oh. You can like create emotions real. You can just journal on how you're feeling. There's lots of different avenues. Okay. That's fun. Art therapy is especially interesting when you think about how it provides an outlet for many patients specifically patients whose voices are often diminished, marginalized, or judged. Like one example, individuals with verbal impairments may find art is a form where they can express themselves and speak to others. Just because you can't physically communicate doesn't mean that your mind is not beautiful and creative and expressive. And art therapy is such a great way for people to express themselves through a medium that they um, can, you know, share with others. And then also, women, this is really important for women because women are often, if they're sick, can be told that they're weak. Like they're not tough enough to go through the pain of whatever illness they're having, or even that they're faking it. We've talked about in the past how a lot of women illnesses, women's illnesses are seen as like a mechanism for them to get out of their responsibilities. Like the rest cure would be used as punishment for women to be like, you're not actually I sick. Know. Like we're going to give you this terrible treatment so that you can stop faking the rest it. cure. You know? It always comes up, man. Every time. And then in today's society, women with diseases like fibromyalgia, oh, which is yeah. a disease where your body has immense pain for no apparent reason. Like you get a bunch of tests done and nothing is coming, like everything's coming back normal. And, but you're like, I am in so much pain. It's a really hard disease to understand. And a lot of people We'll see it as like, oh, you're just crazy or attention seeking. It's just because they don't understand the disease. But those women are really like in pain. They really have a disease happening. There's also a lot of black patients who are told that their pain is not as bad mm -hmm. because of historically incorrect and racist ideas about black patients' physiology. The examples of like people discarded and like ignored in medicine can go on, on and on. But my point is all those people I just mentioned, all everyone else out there that might experience like being pushed aside. Is that art therapy is a space where these people can express their illness and like what it means to them in a medium that might be able to be understood by others because you might be saying you feel a certain way and people can just ignore you, but it's different to maybe paint how you're feeling and show someone else that painting. And even though they might not know exactly what you're trying to say, they can get the gist of it. They can see by the colors you use, the shapes, the scene you have made what is happening and kind of construct their own idea of that image. And some of that art may speak to you and it can allow you to um, finally hear a part of someone's story that they just weren't able to say out loud or wasn't fully being understood when they spoke it. So it's very special in that way. 
And part of art is exactly that. Like you're looking at art and you're interpreting it the best of your ability. You're trying to see what the artist is trying to convey, which is one reason why art is actually becoming part of some medical school curriculums. The reason I actually decided to do this episode was originally because my aunt sent me this article from the New York Times called How an Aesthetics Eye Can Help a Doctor's Hand. And I was like, what? What could this be about? And the article actually talks about a collaboration between art museums and hospitals slash medical schools and forming projects and programs to teach healthcare providers more about art. And the idea, right? The idea is that by learning how to interpret art and think about art from a critical view, you can improve someone's clinical skills. That's cool. Kind of right. So if your eye is trained analyzing something that has no words, it has no explanations, just interpretation, it can carry into other fields. So one example this article had was um, a doctor walk in, walks into a room and sees this patient. And the patient has been in the hospital for a week or so. They're still trying to figure out what's wrong. And the patient is surrounded by family members. And the doctor notices right away, like this is the first time this doctor seeing this patient. The doctor notices that the patient's skin color is multiple degrees darker than their family member's skin color. So, Alicia, what is something you would add to your differential diagnosis just from that observation? Primary DOS or adrenal. Wait, no. I would add Wilson's disease. I think that one adds up, but you were on the right track with the first one, the primary adrenal adrenal insufficiency. I got confused for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So otherwise known as like Addison's disease. So that was the example in the paper um, or in the article. Is that right away this doctor was like, this patient has Addison's disease, which is a disease that causes like a darkening of the skin. So if you have lighter toned skin, then this disease can be very apparent because all of a sudden your skin is much darker naturally, which um, fun side note about this disease. Um, JFK, the president of the United States long ago, actually had Addison's disease. That totally disease, makes sense. Which is why he's he al- like always tan. Which is why. Yeah. So that's why he's always so tan. And apparently the media always said he was tan because he was always out sailing or something. But really it was because he had Addison's that's disease. That's really funny. So sorry to blow your cover. Um, JFK, you know, we're blowing the family's cover in the last episode oh God, about ECT. Yikes. And now in this one, like we're showing all on your dirty laundry. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. But yeah. But anyway, the practice of art and medical education pushes students to be open-minded, curious, and also tolerant of ambiguity, um, which is hard, honestly, for medical students. A lot of medical students are very type A, and they want to know exactly what is happening, like with no question or out of reason. That's not how the human body works, though. It how, it's how it works on paper, but an actual person is not so simple mm-hmm. and straightforward. So having a more tolerant mindset that's more open-minded can be extremely beneficial in patients. Therefore, like this allows a person to finally see the patient for who they are. And this is interesting because in the medical world, if you're not in the medical world, you might not know these things, but it's becoming very techy in a way. Like medicine is full of really cool and innovative gadgets. These gadgets are so fun. They make medicine so advanced and you can learn so many things about patients from them. But they're gadgets and they're like, not actually things where you're looking at the patient. So in a way, the physical exam, which is what, you know, your doctor does when you come into the room, say when you're growing up and you have to get all these exam maneuvers done, that is kind of becoming like its own lost art form because you can learn a lot about a patient from physical exam. But now some doctors don't even do a physical exam, which is if that, if I was going to doctor and they didn't do a physical exam on me, I would switch doctors because that's not a good doctor. But it's just becoming easy for people to depend on these gadgets and not depend on their own knowledge and what they can learn from, you know, speaking to a patient and examining a patient more directly. So if you have a mindset that's built more on like this background of art, you can help doctors and actually seeing their patient, like instead of staring on the laptop screen when they get to the patient's room, asking them a bunch of questions and leaving, you can help a doctor actually see their patient. You can help them observe them and interpret them and carry out the physical exam with this new, like, aesthetic eye. But, 
you know, medical school is super busy, life in general is super busy. So it's a lot to ask any average medical student to spend their free time at an art museum, you know, staring at canvases, the lines on them, asking them like how it makes them feel. It's just a lot to ask someone. So some schools have actually taken action to make this a part of their curriculum in general. So there's this program called Arts Practica, which was created to bring these lessons into the medical realm, like art lessons. And this program works with schools such as Harvard Medical School, Boston University, Brigham and Women's Hospital, University of South Florida, University of uh, California, San Francisco, like a bunch of places. And they teach classes based on visual thinking strategies, which is basically all, all the things about like art and medicine we've been talking about that teaches people how to approach leading, learning, interactions with people based on their experiences in art. Programs also teach a lot about empathy and compassion. And empathy training is so important for anyone working with people in general. And art is such a unique medium to teach empathy through. What I, I guess I'm like kind of confused about what this company is like doing though. So they're like, they have the curriculum already set up so the school doesn't have to create the curriculum. They're like partnering with schools. They will teach art, like, I guess these like art theories of, I have an example later of like what a lesson can look oh, like. Oh, I okay, guess that okay. might like then, clear then something that's fine. But I will say first that Yale Medical School actually has had an, a required course for almost 24 years now that is based in like art. So you have to go and take this art class. You have to go to these art museums and interpret art as part of the school. And it's just a required class that every single person has to take. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these are a lot of really nice schools I just mentioned that have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And not all schools have that much money. It takes a lot of time and a lot of resources to create a medical school in general. And it takes even more to create a class that is not entirely essential. So not every school has it. That's okay. My school doesn't have a class like this. But there are ways in medical school that you can teach yourself about art, such as things like an art and medicine club, which I know my school has one, and they do things like working to create a student art gallery in the school. They go to local like elementary schools to teach anatomy through art. They also provide workshops for students to express themselves um, in their artistic side. I'm going to explain now like how powerful like an art history lesson could be for a doctor. So I was reading this article that described like how an instructor did her class. And what she would do is give a, her students a piece of art with zero other information. Just like, look at this piece of art. They didn't get to know the name of it, like when it was done, what it's made of, like who made it, anything. So you just ask them, like, describe the art. What does it mean to you? Like, what might be the name of it? Like, who is in this piece? Um, and then, like, even more pressing questions. Like, what does this piece tell you about the subject's identity? Do they have any like features that call out to you that tell you about them, like such type of thing. And then after asking these questions and discussing the answers, you can start having conversations that are a little more in depth. Like, why did you assign the individual that gender? Like, why do you think they're that ethnicity? Why do you think they're doing that thing? Why did you assume that their culture is this? And then like, why do you have those assumptions Did you that you have carried out? And like, what types of biases do you hold that influenced how you interpreted that art piece? And the example they used was this, like, looked like a carving, and it was two figures wrestling, and the piece was actually called The Wrestlers. Mm. But students interpreting the piece were like, are these individuals having sex? Is it a man and a man? Is it, like, a man and a woman? Um, just, like, a lot of questions going into it as they, like, stared at it trying to interpret it. And then afterwards, they could talk about, like, okay, what about, like, the way they're moving made you think this? What about... Um, them being like the same gender, opposite gender is like, how did that make you feel? Like, why do you feel that way type of thing? So it's like kind of pushing someone to have these conversations that happen a lot in a much more fluent way, because sometimes it's very jarring to ask someone to address their biases right off bat and compared to going through art and being able to slowly break it down. Yeah. And I think it's cool. So it's like a very... It's a way where you can take a single piece of art and you can have a simple conversation that can lead into a much deeper one where you reflect on your own thoughts and feelings. And this is super important. Like I mentioned, like physical exam is a lost art, but there can be a lot of biases and like assumptions that go into it because one major part of said physical exam is when you enter a room to see a patient, like I'm walking in the room, I'm like, hi, I am student Dr. Charlotte and I'm going to blah, blah, blah today. 
who are you? Blah, 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 blah. That's not actually how I enter a room, but you know, you get the gist of it. And one of the first things you do is like you assess the patient mentally. Like you're not allowed being like patient looks like they are tired. Patient looks like they like are unkept, things like that. But you're starting to like look at the patient, come up with this like mental idea of who they are as you do their general, general assessment. Mm-hmm. And you're making these mental notes on how the patient speaks. Do they make eye contact with you? Or are they in some kind of mood? And these observations help you start to like build this medical image of them. And this is important because you're using all this nonverbal language and appearances right when you open that door. And you don't want this to be clouded by any type of judgment or bias. And if you do have bias and you are able to address it and then move past it and be able to assess the patient for more of a clean slate. So that practice of like looking at that painting and being like, what does this mean? Why am I having these thoughts? Do I have any biases? And then moving on and learning about them is the same as like looking at a patient for the first time being like, I'm just meeting you. I don't really know who you are, but I'm thinking all these things and building this image of you in my head and trying to figure out like why you're here. But I need to address if I'm having any biases or judgments as I'm thinking these things that I can push aside and address at a different time. So it doesn't influence like my encounter with you. That's really interesting. Right? thought that was super interesting because I've always thought like, like when you're observing a patient like that can be like a little biased and like, I don't like assuming things about people, but you have to be able to, you know, if a patient has a depressed mood, you're not going to ask them like, are you depressed? Like right off the bat, but if you can like interpret that a little bit, then you can start, you know, lead your encounter in a way that can lead them to talk about it or something. Oh yeah. But to do that, you have to, you know, you have to judge them a little bit. You have to look at them and be like, you look like you're depressed, you know, it's, it's a weird like line to. Oh, I toe. completely agree. Um, I was going to make a quick comment about that too. I think that point exactly is what um, made me a little bit uneasy about mm-hmm. um, psychiatry, not as a practice mm-hmm. as a whole, but my ability to be a good psychiatrist. Like, I don't think I'm going to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. And it's like, because one of the parts of the physical exam or the mental like status exam um, is insight and like kind of Mm -hmm. writing about a patient's insight into their own condition. And so you essentially in a way like have to pass judgment on the patient to determine their level of insight about their condition. And it's not to say that they're not you know, that they're not in touch with reality, but their reality is just different from, from your reality. And you have Mm -hmm. to like comment on that. And I just, I'm very like bad at that. I find that very like weird to do. So it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, for sure. So there are many ways that art can be beneficial, like in general, as just a field itself, whether connected to medicine or not. But in its connection to health, just it can be beneficial like to its patients and it's to its providers. So whether you're expressing yourself, treating your illness, or just trying to understand other people, it is great. And I think that's super cool. And I want to talk about it. If you're okay with that, Alicia. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. We're back and I'm ready to talk about all the art things. So Alicia, tell me your thoughts on this episode. I thought it was a fun episode. You kind of took it in a different direction than I thought you would, but that's, I guess, maybe on me and like my assumptions. Um, <laughs> well, what do you think it was going to go well, on? I think like, you know, in the beginning, when you asked me about an artist that is connected to medicine, I immediately thought, well, not immediately, but I thought about Da Vinci because of all of his like medical texts and like Mm -hmm. how he used Yeah. And like drawings of medicine. Like he used art and basically like anatomy to showcase like his medical knowledge. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think I thought that was the direction we were taking it in or like talking about like really old, like Renaissance art pieces of like, old like you know people who were really sick or like the plague or something like that like depictions of art in the past but I guess that's just like another example of how art and media are 
up for interpretation. And so kind mm-hmm. of like, even as broad as the concept of art and medicine is, it's kind of fun in that way that you can take it in whatever direction you want. So yeah. that was like my first thought. The other thoughts I had were just like fleeting, like, you know, intermittent thoughts throughout the episode. So I loved that Frida Kahlo painted a painting called Henry Ford Hospital. Thought that was fun. I know. <laughs> the second thing is like a little more, you know, thoughtful, but talking about the physical exam and kind of the art of the physical exam. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of like older, not even older, but just like more practiced physicians that I've worked with also mention the fact that they feel like the physical exam is dying. My mom is one of them. She's mm-hmm. like, the physical exam is really important. And like people, she particularly will draw kind of parallels between like U.S. trained physicians and non-U.S. trained physicians and says that we Mm -hmm. actually err on the side of like ordering the test rather than, you know, feeling Mm -hmm. confident in our diagnosis, which I find interesting. interesting. But the other thing about just like losing the physical exam that I was thinking about as you were talking was like the concept of virtual care. And how, because Mm -hmm. we're like moving into so much virtual care, we really don't do a very thorough physical exam sometimes, unless there's things that the patient can do on their end, or they Mm -hmm. like, they would just have to come in. Um, Yeah. And we really lose a lot. Like I remember in neurology clinic, there were some times where like neurology is so physical, like it's a lot of sensation, yeah. movement, reflexes. It's a very long physical exam. It is. It's like super intricate. Yeah, and you just have to be able to touch the patient to make it, you mm-hmm. know, to get anything useful. Um, and so I could like see firsthand how the inability to have a physical exam kind of actually prolonged that patient's care because for example, like they were Mm -hmm. here for dizziness and there's a couple of physical exam things that you can do to help like kind of rule out immediate causes of dizziness. But because she wasn't in there in person, we had to like add that on to what we needed to do at a future appointment. Oh, that's so interesting because telehealth is supposed to like streamline care, but in some encounters, like if it's just making care, you know, longer than you're in, in the end, probably charging the patient more. And it's like not doing what it's trying to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think that was like a very clear example of that, that I experienced, which I was um, shocked by. And then the last thought yeah. that I had um, was kind of about art therapy in general. Um, and just wanting to recognize too, that like art therapy is so wonderful and it's really mm-hmm. special that we have access to it. And there's just that is like there is an accessibility issue with art therapy and like not every hospital has the resources to provide patients with art therapy particularly like under-resourced hospitals hospitals in big cities with particularly like patients of color or from lower Mm -hmm. socioeconomics like strata so that's like something I wanted to kind of mention and highlight yeah. I mean, um, even at Michigan, like in college, you know, Alicia and I are both part of an organization called Dance Marathon, which is at a lot of uni- like universities across the country. And the Dance Marathon at University of Michigan specifically fundraises for occupational therapies at the University of Michigan hospitals. And art therapy is actually one of the programs. And what's crazy is like a bunch of college students are raising money mm-hmm. and helping fund this art therapy program, you know, like college students are trying to like fund a program for a hospital for one of the best hospitals in the country needs help for a bunch of 18 to 22 (laughs) year olds to give them the money to run the program. You know, like there's a lot of therapies out there, like other occupational therapies, you know, like there's dance therapy, there's music therapy, there's, there's yoga therapies, there's karate therapies. Like there's tons of different therapies that are extremely, extremely beneficial to patients, but they're not well-funded because they're not like the highest need therapies there are. And they're also not covered by insurance a lot of times either. So they can be out of pocket costs, which hospitals can try to cover for patients the best they can, but, you know, like fundraising and things like that. But you're right. They're not the most accessible therapies um, for people. So I'm glad that you brought that up Hmm. too. And then 
also comments on the physical exam part because um, I talked to my dad a lot about this, who is a primary like care provider, and he will talk about how frustrating he finds that like people don't do physical exams because for him he's like people I only get to see people for 15 minutes to do their well check, and if I don't do a thorough physical exam, then I could miss like something major, and they could have a major illness down the road because my physical exam wasn't. Um, thorough enough. And I didn't see like the very first sign of that illness. Mm -hmm. And it's something that he takes very seriously. And it's one of the reasons he really likes being a primary care provider because you are like the first line for seeing something that's going wrong. And if you're good at it, then you can like really save patients a lot of hurt down the road. All right. Well then, Alicia, my next question is, what does art mean to you? This could be, take it however you want to take it. (laughs) I think that art is a wonderful outlet for emotion, which sounds Mm -hmm. cliche, but it really ties into what we were talking about with, um, you know, just like people having really large benefits from art therapy, um, because sometimes it's hard Mm -hmm. to voice what they're going through, but then the, like being able to draw it or express it in a different way is helpful. And I think that just kind of goes to show like a larger theme of it is, really beneficial to be able to share emotions and I think that Mm -hmm. like we too often in our society in general and just the ways that we're socialized we're told that in some in like either many scenarios or certain scenarios it's not okay to share emotion Um, and I think Mm -hmm. art therapy kind of gives us the opportunity to forego those those barriers Mm -hmm. and just like do it Um, yeah, for sure. And I think like the only problem, not problem, but like, I will say one of the issues is like people's own mental barriers of like being able to, you know, share art or like draw or like express themselves. I think people think like, oh, I'm not a good artist. And so I like, don't want to draw anything. I don't want to, it's going to look bad, blah, blah, blah. Which is why I was kind of asking about what goes into an art therapy session because I think oh yeah you phrase it a certain way it makes people feel less intimidated about like creating something um because it kind of forces you not forces but it encourages you to create just to create rather than create for an outcome yeah that's true it is hard to create art in general like as someone who likes creating art and I still get really stressed about like it and my roommate is like a huge like artist and is part of the art medicine like club at our medical school. And she's a fantastic artist and I'll come home and she'll be like laying on the floor, like doing these huge art paintings. And then like, I'll sit down to draw and she'll be like, why are your drawings? Like, so, you know, like, like, so type a, like such straight lines, she's like you can be more fluid with it. I'm like, yeah, but I like, I like having it perfect. And like, I get stressed when it doesn't look so good at first. And we were talking about just like our different art styles, what that means for our very different personalities. And it was interesting that our like approach to art is like super different because of that. But you're right. Like it is stressful. Like some people are like, I'm not good at art. And then you see them draw and you're like, I don't know. That looks fine to me. Mm -hmm. Like, like don't bash on yourself, which is another thing why it's interesting. Um, I like that like art therapy has been shown to increase people's self-esteem because just by like doing art and like speaking to a therapist, like as you do art, whether you want to share with share with people or not, like you might be able to build your own self-esteem as you like express yourself in ways you never have before. It's really cool. I will say for myself, um, I, I love art. I think it's really amazing and emotional and, uh, but I've never really felt like an emotional, like pull from art until I actually went to this one exhibit in New York with my friend, Whitney, shout out to Whitney who listens to our podcast. Um, she took me to this exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum of Art or just the Brooklyn Museum in New York City. And there's this art exhibit called The Dinner Party by Judy Chicago. It's on the permanent, like it's a permanent exhibit on the feminist art floor in that museum. The exhibit's from the 1970s and it is honestly breathtaking. It is in this like dark room, like lowly lit room. It's a triangular table and it's a dinner party. So there's a bunch of place settings and each place setting is for a woman from history Mm. and each place setting is extremely intricate and well-designed and it's each one is supposed to be like a vagina basically oh that's fun and it's supposed to be 
representative of that woman's life and like why she was so influential and the different types of things like she did that made her so important and like worth being recognized throughout all of history. And it's all done through like um, this like part of a woman's body. And the exhibit is just so breathtaking. I could you could sit there and read about each person for so long. Um, and then for all the women that she didn't have a chance to make a place setting for, their names are all across the floor, just coding the floor and women's names from history. It's just a very powerful piece where there's all these women represented from across time, whether they're real or mythical, ancient or like from the 1900s, like they're all there and represented through art. And I always thought, I just think it's a really special piece. Um, there's a lot of women in medicine represented there. Elizabeth Blackwell is mm. there. Her piece is really interesting. Her dinner plate is um, like this like swirling of rainbows. And at the center, there's a black like circle, which is supposed to represent like a black well for her last name being like Blackwell. Oh. And which I thought was cool. And I was reading up on this before this. Um, and like the rainbow um, swirling around are supposed to represent like how she brought so much forward for like women in medicine throughout her life. And like, from her Blackwell, like her being was able to um, like create so many things and be so influential. And I was like, oh, that's so amazing. And it's just a really cool piece. You definitely check it out. You can like Google the dinner party by Judy Chicago and you can look through each like place setting and what it means and like who those women are and why they're influential and like what that piece of art says about them. So that's just a cool example of how like emotional art can be it can tell you a lot about a person about someone's life and in terms of like medicine it can just tell you a lot about what that person's illness is like what someone's going through or just um anything in general i love that yeah it's really great okay um so yeah so if you want to like continue learning with us continue learning about ways that you can open your eyes to new views make your mind more curious and open-minded and all those things, have an aesthetic eye, then you can subscribe to our podcast on any podcasting app that works for you. And you can also leave us a rating and review and Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. And you can also now leave ratings on Spotify. Yes. And you can always follow us, follow us on social media or on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can check out our website for more information, show notes, merch, sources, all the things. And that's from scrubs.com. And lastly, here's to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yay! Yay! See everyone next time. See you next time. Bye.